good issue for all women. Hi, Hannah here and welcome to this week's Sunday Chops, in which I'm talking to author Victoria Bellim about her new non-fiction book, The Rooster House, a Ukrainian family history. Victoria lived in Ukraine for the first 15 years of her life, while it was still part of the Soviet Union. Her family then moved to the US and as an adult, Victoria moved to Belgium. She began writing this book back in 2014 and sadly, Ukraine has become much more of a hot topic since then. That interview is just coming up, so I'm not going to tell you what's in it. Instead, I thought I'd do a quick reminder to subscribe to Standard Issue wherever it is you listen to your podcasts. We've got some great interviews coming up, including not one, but two members of the Smack the Pony team. Mickey's been chatting to Fiona Allen and I've got a phone call scheduled next week with Doom McKeegan. Exciting times. Enjoy the rest of the weekend, whatever it is you're going to be doing. And if that's going to be starting reading The Rooster House, the good news is it's available now in all good bookshops. Hello, Hannah here. I am joined by Victoria Bellim, writer, journalist and translator of Persian literature and poetry, author of a new book, The Rooster House, a Ukrainian family memoir, which is about the search for answers to family mysteries in Ukraine. Thank you so much for joining us, Victoria. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. So I finished your book yesterday. I found it really, really fascinating. Probably the best place to start is if you could give us a little bit of background about yourself. Uh, so my background is in political science, and uh, that's what I studied at the university, although most of my career uh, so far has been spent in journalism, writing about culture, art, and specifically senses, because I'm very fascinated uh, with sense of smell, and I'm also a translator. And all of these pursuits, uh, they really kind of predisposed me to, to do research. And research is something I very much enjoy doing. So when in 2014, I found this family mystery, something that no one could give me you know, answers about, I immediately set out to find out what happened. And the family mystery surrounds uh, my great-grand-uncle Nikodim, and I discovered that he disappeared in under mysterious circumstances. So that was really the genesis of my uh, story with the book. The thing about senses really interests me because my mum doesn't have a sense of smell. She's just never had one. She was born without one. She's never had one. And I always wonder what it is that she misses because she does miss... Like, in many ways, it's great because she said changing nappies, that sort of stuff, no problem, because she could never smell anything. But I do wonder, especially with things like memory, when you smell something and you think, oh, wow, that really reminds me of, I don't know, my nan's kitchen or something like that, that she doesn't have that. No, the sense of smell is really fascinating. It's, uh, first of all, you know, our... Smells are processed in the same part of of the brain where emotions and memories are processed. And uh, as a result, it's true, you know, senses or smells, aromas, they have so much link to what we remember. And uh, for instance, I was born in Kiev, but the first 15 summers of my life I spent in Berek, which is a village outside of Poltava, a town in central Ukraine. And Berek was where my great-grandparents, Asya and Sergei, used to live. 
I'm very fortunate that I was able to spend so much time around my great grandparents. We're actually kind of a very young family. So they were still quite active uh, and sharp and they really took care. They were my, you know, other set of parents in many ways. So when I think about my childhood and that's when I think about Bedek, I think of all the smells because uh, Asia took care of a large garden and she sold flowers. She made flower arrangements and she sold them at the Faltava Central Market. So I was always surrounded by flowers, by all of these herbs that she was collecting and drying. And for me, my olfactory vocabulary is actually just comprises so many things. It's um, it's something that uh, when I need comforting, I kind of turn to these memories of these smells. Now, I think if we've been talking a couple of years ago, I may have had to ask you to explain a little bit more about Ukraine. But obviously, current events mean that certainly our listeners will be a bit more educated about Ukraine. I think as well that the HBO series Chernobyl actually also brought quite a lot of Ukrainian history into sort of the Western domain. A lot of people didn't know it, like the Holodomor, for example. Recently, I read Cassia Hoyer's book, Beyond the Wall, which is about Eastern Europe. And when I was reading your book, it it, it kind of reminded me a little bit of of something I felt when I was reading that, which was there's, there's something inevitable about what happens to Ukraine because of its geography. So it's constantly going to be pulled between East and West, a bit like East Berlin was always going to be pulled between the East and the West. Is that a correct way to look at it? I agree with that uh, perspective because Ukraine is a place at crossroads and it's a place that's kind of stuck between different competing empires, different competing spheres of influence. And as a result, it's often pulled back and forth. And uh, it's part of its history. Ukrainian identity is really grounded in that uh, history and shaped by it. So it's both a tragedy and actually an advantage. And it's an advantage because as a borderland, the place at crossroads, Ukraine really absorbs lots of influences and uh, different cultures. So it has a very interesting, very synthetic uh, culture, which which is quite resilient, especially when you consider how much Ukraine uh, experienced during its history. And yet the culture is vibrant. The culture is uh, something that I devoted a lot of space in my book. It's just talking Mm -hmm. about culture, because to me, like we hear so much about Ukraine these days, but uh, I feel that something that's missing is really the discussing Ukraine, you know, in its own terms, not in terms of the conflict or its position vis-a-vis Russia, etc. But really to give Ukraine its own voice. And I feel that's been missing. Sticking with your book and Beyond the Wall, what's also interesting is that people of my generation who grew up with the Soviet Union, you know, just over there, And then, obviously, I was 15 or 16 when the Soviet Union collapsed. And I think somewhere in your head, you have an instant reaction that everybody is going to think that this is brilliant. We have this idea that everybody was going to be glad that it happened. And I was was really interested to see that you started your book 
with a story about your uncle, which is actually a great unifying theme for, I think, a lot of people, is a lot of people have an uncle they can't talk politics with. And that's how your story starts, because he has a really interesting perspective on Ukraine's relationship with Russia. Yes, and I think that's very significant. You know, that that story of my conflict with my uncle Vladimir that really inspired inspired me to start researching deeper, to go back to Ukraine. He taunted me, you know, like, why are you here uh, in Brussels? Why aren't you in Ukraine? And uh, you're such a patriot. And so I left. Part of it that's very significant is that uh, I think it was the first time I really came face-to-face with someone who had in my family who had such different ideas politically and who held such a categorical, such a rigid point of view. Well, to simplify Vladimir's point of view, it's very pro-Russian. He is a big Putin supporter. And uh, and I would say that he has the Soviet-era you know, fear of Ukrainian nationalism. I mean, during the Soviet Union, Ukrainian nationalism was created as like something to be feared and it was really described in these uh, frightening terms. In some ways, it was also created to divide Ukraine and Ukrainians and Eastern Ukraine and Western Ukraine. But uh, Vladimir really absorbed it. And he was kind of, um, his point of view was shaped by Russian propaganda. And, you know, he, um, he really wouldn't be swayed in any way. And when I turned to him originally, in it was back in 2014 when we had our first heated discussion about politics, I really turned to Vladimir as someone who was someone I admired and respected, and I wanted his support and um, you know some grounding because the events of 2014, you know the annexation of Crimea, the first uh, stirrings of uh, the war in Donbass, that all like really shook my world. And I just really was left with no uh, solid footing to understand what was going on, what was happening. Everything was just such a, such a blur for me. I mean, it was so tragic what I experienced then. And uh, suddenly, someone to whom I turn for comfort is does nothing to comfort me, but quite on the contrary, they being very adversarial, and uh, our conflict was just uh, immediately kind of uh, blew out of proportion. You could probably see a, a similar dynamic playing out all over the world. You know, in America, people's uncles have become obsessed with QAnon. It's so hard to get through to people. No, absolutely. It's very difficult. You know, you have generational gap, you have also informational gap, where someone receives their information really mm. will shape how they view the world. I mean, it's really, uh, it's really scary when you come to think about it, because uh, with so much information, access to information, we're still kind of all kind of guided to different sources and channels. Okay, so your book, The Rooster House, could you explain to our listeners what The Rooster House actually is or was? The Rooster House used to be a bank. It was uh, constructed at the turn of the 20th century. It's one of the most beautiful buildings in Poltava. 
And Poltava is a city in central Ukraine, as I mentioned, and that's where my mom's family comes from. So this building is called the Rooster House because its facade is flanked by two sirens, roosters in colloquial speech. It was uh, a bank, but after the Bolshevik Revolution and the establishment of the Soviet Union, it became the headquarters of um, secret police. So something that eventually became uh, KGB. And that place was uh, something that embodied uh, fear and all the things horrible. And in Poltava, it was widely feared. And my great-grandparents certainly found it uh, just horrifying. My great-grandmother, Asya, preferred to walk as far away as possible from it, and she hardly ever mentioned it. The reason that the I called the book The Rooster House is because it embodies several things. It embodies the old fears that are still very strong. It embodies Ukraine's relationship to its Soviet past, which is still unprocessed, undigested, and still causes traumas and conflicts, not just within families, but really within the country. And I feel like so much of what we're witnessing in Ukraine, too, also has roots in these metaphorical rooster houses in the Soviet past. And part, actually, of the reason why uh, Ukraine is standing up to Russian aggression so strongly and so resiliently is also this fear of not wanting to go to go back to the rooster house, to really leave that behind and to move on just to take another historical path. So the Soviet Union is no more, the KGB is no more, but the fears persist and the fears really shape the way society sees itself, the way people interact with each other and the way families process their own stories. And that's really the story of my family. You said that was unprocessed. How does Ukraine go about processing that? Or is it just something that will die out as the generations who remember it also leave us? Processing any traumatic past is a very slow process. And it has to come from within. It has to come from the new generation. It has to come from the generation of people who no longer want to live on the street called Lenin and uh, so on to be surrounded by these vestiges of the Soviet system. Because when Ukraine became independent in 1991, all the Soviet past was sort of rolled under the carpet or sometimes ignored. Some things were not changed. Some aspects of the system remained the same, including, you know, Soviet bureaucracy and so on. And it seemed fine until uh, you realize that when you put away that past without kind of giving much thought to what it meant, what it did to the society, to the culture, even to the language, then you have these examples of Soviet nostalgia and nostalgia for so-called good old days. And when people don't understand that something that what they had suffered, their families had suffered, uh, was really the result of the Soviet system. And that, for instance, uh, the example of my uncle Vladimir, someone who had the strong Soviet nostalgia and uh, uh, for whom, you know, Soviet Union benefited our family so much. Well, never mind the fact that uh, so many family members suffered because of the Soviet Union, because of mm. what uh, they lived through. 
So reconciling all of that is really complicated, but it has to happen. It's interesting because recently I've been to a couple of places or I've been looking to go on holiday to a couple of places where I have seen that the Soviet history or the communist history is actually now history in museum form. For example, in Dubrovnik, there's a Red History Museum. I was looking at Albania and they have, I think it's called the House of Leaves, which was a former sort of, like you say, like security services type that is now a museum. It's definitely the case that uh, some of that history just has to be processed somehow. And that has to be done for... Uh, the people, for the local people themselves, like how mm-hmm. do yep. they deal with it? How do they come to terms with it? Uh, that's uh, that's really something that I find um, in Ukraine has been slow. And, uh, and part of the reason is uh, because after the fall of the Soviet Union, you know, the people who came to power were the former communists who just kind of took on this Ukrainian you know, nationalist garb. But really, nothing changed in in some sense. So these changes were kind of uh, are happening now at a faster pace because many people are trying to come to terms with everything that's going on in the country and to understand what is what is really happening. And that's really for me was one of the motivations for writing the book was uh, to understand what was happening in 2014. I would have to say that I finished the book before the war started in 2022. So uh, the story is not about 2022, although the war is kind of an echo in the story and uh, and a premonition of sorts. But really, for me, writing uh, the story, going to Ukraine, traveling around and uh, trying to find all these clues to this past, uh, was uh, something that was inspired by my desire to understand what was happening. There's an interesting point. Your book is a sort of a main plank of the of the summer launch of books. It's 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 arrived with some fanfare, and I I could see why, obviously, because all eyes are looking at Ukraine. But in truth, the rest of the world has only really, relatively recently, noticed what's happening in in Ukraine because of what happened in 2022. To a certain extent, you have been at war since 2014. And I think that quite often when I see conversations, even in our media about it, that's not acknowledged. Now, you muse at the end of your book that would you be in this situation now had we paid more attention in 2014? Which is a really, really interesting question. It's an interesting question, and I think that it's definitely the case that uh, we missed so much uh, in 2014. In 2014, also, Russian propaganda was so much stronger, and it really diverted our attention, you know, from the issues that uh, were taking place at the time. We spent so much time talking about what was the result of the, or what was the instigation of the Maidan revolution, and uh, that we missed something quite important. We missed the chance mm. to hear Ukraine. Originally, actually, what I wanted to write was a history book because um, I was already living in Brussels at the time and I would go to different think tanks and, uh, you know, about Ukraine. 
and not hear anything about Ukraine. I would hear only about, you know, these great power considerations or, you know, about Russia. And Ukraine was a place uh, that was talked about, but that was without a voice. Or else when it was talked about, its uh, history facts were so skewed and uh, I simply uh, felt frustrated. And uh, I decided that I was going to um, to write a book that put all of that straight. <laughs> that that was the idea that I had. Well, I'm mm-hmm. a political scientist. I'm not a historian. And even though I was trained by the historian uh, Timothy Snyder, who wrote one of the best books about that part of the world called Bloodlands. It's a very difficult read, but it's much recommended. He talks about period of history, which is particularly difficult and bloody in uh, Eastern Europe in general, and in Ukraine specifically, so between Stalin and Hitler. So you can see how much of that old history influenced the present. I saw that Ukrainian author Victoria Amelina had been killed in Ukraine, and I yes. thought terribly sad news. Really tragic. In many ways, war is, for literature, the best of times and the worst of times. Is there anybody else that's writing at the moment that you think our listeners should be reading? Any Ukrainian authors? I very much like works by Andrei Kurkov. Uh, he's, uh, he often writes with a sense of humour. He has novels that are, you know, despite their sense of humour, they have kind of this uh, very interesting and very uh, sharp uh, view of the situation. So much recommended. And even though she's not Ukrainian, she's Belarusian. Svetlana Alexievich, uh, many of her books talk about the Soviet Union and talk about the shared history of uh, the three countries, Ukraine, Russia, Belarus, and even further. They're quite important to read. I feel that uh, she's uh, She's really remarkable. So, and Sergei Jadan, his uh, poetry or his uh, his prose, really much recommended. These are the authors I turn to again and again. I have one last question for you, which is, can you explain to people what a cucumber whisperer is and why you <laughs> never get one from a newspaper? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, in um, my grandmother's village in Bedek, um, I discovered very much to my surprise that there was such a profession as a cucumber whisperer, someone who <laughs> would cast a spell on your cucumbers or whatever it is that you wanted to grow and uh, for a plentiful harvest. So I've just come to accept it for what it is <laughs> and not question it. I don't think you get them here. So I was thinking maybe I could get a little side hustle on. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time. This has been really interesting. Thank you very much. Standard issue for all women.